Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So what a what an episode that we have ahead of us today. We have a very exciting founder, you know, one of those founders that has actually helped to shape up the tech ecosystem in New York. I remember back in the day when I was starting my first company, you know, like they were, you know, already paving the way for many, many, many different startups that would come out, you know, at the end of the day. And mine actually being one of them. But in any case, you know, I think that today we're going to be learning a lot about building, a lot about scaling, a lot about financing, also about going public and product market fit, of course. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Elliot Horowitz. Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks. I'm excited to be here. Looking forward to it. So originally, originally, you know, you were born in, in Connecticut, living between Connecticut and New York. Give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up, Elliot? Growing up, you know, life was uh, was pretty good. Connecticut or New York, definitely lots of uh, computers. Uh, I was always interested in computers and programming and such things. Uh, also, spent a lot of time playing in the in the water and uh, a lot of marine stuff, which has definitely shaped some of the more later robotic stuff we've been playing with these days. Uh, so pretty good, you know. How how do you get into the computers, Elliot? So both my parents are doctors. My dad was pretty big into computers, and he actually bought a Radio Shack computer that was in our living room. Uh, and he would occasionally write very silly, you know, this, you know, early 80s, very silly computer games that I would play. And then I started wanting to modify them and then writing my own. And so very early on, I was just you know hacking on these random computer games that my dad was playing with. And uh, kind of just went from there. Now, in your case, you ended up going to Brown. Uh, and obviously, no surprise, you studied computer science. And uh, and after after Brown, you know, you did your, I mean, obviously, during Brown, you did your internship at DoubleClick. And then you ended up going to work with him. And I think that that uh, really put you on the map and also, you know, helped you to really build a network that uh, would help you to to get into the startup world later. So, Tell us about that experience, you know, a double click, and then what happened right after that with ShopWiki. Yeah, so in college, I interned at DoubleClick. I was working with Dwight Merriman, who was one of the original founders of DoubleClick. And he and I kind of hit it off, and uh, I ended up going, interning at DoubleClick twice. After college, I ended up coming to New York, and I worked with Dwight again at DoubleClick. Uh, and so that was in 2003. Uh, I was at DoubleClick for about a year and a half. And then in 2005, I started a company with Dwight and Kevin Ryan, who was the CEO of DoubleClick at the time. And yeah, I mean, I've been working with Dwight and Kevin mostly on for the better part of you know, almost basically almost twenty years now. That's amazing, and we we've also we've also had Kevin Ryan, you know, as well on the show. Uh, so uh, definitely, you know, recommend uh, listening to that episode. So with uh, with with Shop Wiki, I mean, obviously you go there to double click, you hit it off as you were saying with Dwight, 
and um, eventually ShopWiki, you know, comes knocking the idea of ShopWiki. So how did that come about? Because that was the the first real, you know, startup that uh, that you would actually, you know, be part of of the of the founding team. Yeah. So the original impetus was, uh, you know, this was way back when, but Dwight was trying to find some bespoke parts for a bicycle. And this was in 2004, 2005 era. And Amazon wasn't, you know, the e-commerce giant then. It was obviously big, but it wasn't, you know, everything. This was in the era when people were buying lots of digital cameras because they didn't really have cameras on phones. And, you know, people would comparison shop for how do I get the most number of megapixels and optical zoom in a reasonable price when um, price comparison shopping was a big deal because trying to find the best deal on a digital camera or a TV online was all the rage. And you could actually go look at 10 different sites and get 10 different prices depending on the day. And so we, and there was no one place where you could go and be like, great, I just want to find everything I can buy on the internet and across, you know, 100,000 stores and search and find things and, comparison shop and so we were like okay great we're going to go build a, a crawling engine for the entire internet of things you can buy on the internet and put it all into one place and make it really easy to find everything and find the best deals uh we did a pretty good job actually we built a pretty cool product but in the interim in the time that it took to build the product the internet kind of changed amazon kind of became much more of a behemoth Google kind of became the front page of the internet. And so trying to change people's patterns for how they shopped seemed um, not terribly viable at that point. Uh, and we ended up selling ShopWiki. Uh, did well, but it was a, you know it was not quite going to be the company we thought it was going to be. Well, definitely not the company that you ended up uh, building next because that was quite a smashing success with MongoDB. Now, with ShopWiki, at least, you know, like when the when you guys were able to sell the company, that at least gave you access to really see the the full cycle of a company, you know, like from inception all the way to the finish line. You know, what kind of visibility did that give you? Huge. You know, I think um, starting a company the first time is a huge learning experience. The second times, and you know, Mongo is a huge learning experience as well. And you know, having now started a third company, it's just a completely different world. Or there's so many things that were like complicated or you don't know what to do or you just make certain kinds of mistakes because you just have no idea what's going on. And then doing it the second and third time, you you know what to do, right? Things that you were really concerned about before, you just don't have to worry about. Um, whether it's how to hire certain kinds of people, the kind of people you want to hire, how to manage meetings, right? How to do all hands meetings, just basic things that every company has to do that the more experience you have doing it multiple times, just everything changes. So let's talk about Mongo. So after the exit of ShopWiki, how did the idea of Mongo come about? And how did you guys end up polishing the business model to make it to something that uh, will be appealing to customers? So the idea for Mongo came from a lot of shared frustration that Dwight and I had had in, in quite a number of products, both at ShopWiki, at DoubleClick, and other places. And the basic idea was that Working with databases was way too complicated. The existing tools at the time, you know, since the fall of 2007, just weren't good enough, right? Whether it was the data models and how to scale them, how to manage them, it was just much too complicated. And so in some ways, it was an easy problem to solve because we said, great, let's build a database that we want, right? It wasn't, we didn't have to go find users and do, re you know, do research. It was like, no, let's just build the product we want 
And the assumption was that if we did that, then other developers, other users would be like, actually, we want that same thing too. Uh, turned out we were right, right? You know, getting the details right, understanding how to make it easy to use, how to you know add all the features they need, how to prioritize what really matters to the biggest breadth of developers. All those things take a huge amount of time and effort. But fundamentally, you know, developers wanted the same tools that we wanted because we're not completely crazy and we built what we wanted and they wanted it too. So what ended up being the business model of MongoDB? How are you guys making money there? So it was a big transition, right? In the beginning of MongoDB, we were selling fundamentally commercial support to the database and enterprise features on the database itself, neither of which was sort of a, an unbelievably great business model. Uh, we ended up starting to sell more enterprise management tools, uh, which was a better business. And then in, I get the year wrong, 2015 or 2016, we launched MongoDB Atlas. Right? And Atlas is the hosted version of Mongo. Um, and that has turned into the, the massive growth engine for Mongo because um, everything is just fully managed. Any user can just go to Atlas and get a database in seconds. And it will just scale with you forever, right? And it handles all these things for you right out of the bat. And that's huge, right? And that, I don't know the exact details anymore, but it is a, the majority of Mongo's revenue and is growing incredibly fast these days. Uh, it also sort of is a, a really interesting concept of how you can take sort of open source software and now monetize it in the cloud in sort of really interesting ways. And what were what were the early signs of product market fit at Mongo? So when we first, you know, you launched Mongo, we opened, you know, I remember we launched it was called like version 0 0.8. We put it out into the world. We had like two users and uh, and nothing happened. It's like, cool, we did this thing. It's out there on the internet. Uh, great, that's it. Nothing happened at all. And so what did we do? We went to meetups. We talked about it to people. And one guy wrote a blog post about how he migrated his small website uh, to MongoDB. And he did just a really great job of describing what and why and what he did. And then over the next three months, you just saw more people just kind of like trying it, asking tons of questions. And about a year later, we held our first user conference in San Francisco and it sold out in like 48 hours. And we did it again in New York about two months later and that sold out in 48 hours. And that's when we knew we actually had something. But a lot of it was, you know, lots and lots of very small, seemingly unimportant changes and details that we had to get right. And the only way we figured that out was by spending a inordinate amount of time working with users. Right. You know, I remember being in IRC in the user forms, on emails with customers, felt like 24-7. Just, you know, people would ask questions that were seeming like, okay, well, what's wrong? Why doesn't this work? Why doesn't the documentation make this clear? How do we make this as, as good as possible? And we just spent a huge amount of time with users, making sure that we understood what they were doing, what was easy, what was hard, and how to make it better. And how hard was it to 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 do all of this and to get started during an economic downturn because now you know you're a master at launching companies when you know there's a correction in the market you know you're doing it now with your latest company which we're going to be talking about in just a little bit but with mongo you guys got started in 2007 so how was that experience like 
very mixed, right? So some things were were great. Hiring wasn't that hard. Um, the real estate market was not great, which for someone like me at the time who had no money and was trying to stay in Manhattan, it was great. The biggest challenge for us at that point was raising money, right? Raising money in 2008, 2009 was not particularly easy. The good side was that Mongo was, you know, the cheap option relative to Oracle for sure. And so we had a lot of interest in a lot of people were like looking at Mongo as a cost saving measure, both from an actual database cost, direct, you know, direct cost, and also from a development standpoint, right? The premise of Mongo was, hey, use the database, it's cheaper, and your developers are going to be more effective, meaning you're going to save time and money. So the, the prospect was great during an economic downturn. Uh, raising money was really hard. Besides that, it was actually okay. It wasn't the kind of product that was required a frothy market or needed you know billions of dollars of venture capital to get going. Uh, it's a big product for sure, but not nothing crazy. And what were the um the I mean one of obviously the challenges there were the long cycles to get the customers. So how did you guys go about that and 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 really optimizing? Yeah, at Mongo and again uh, at VM now, one of the big challenges is in a platform like that, you have sort of a, a four-step process to, to really being a successful business. First step is getting users, right? You got to get users. Users turn into customers, right? You know, customers slash companies. Customers and companies have to start then using, you know, using your product, right? Because both, you know, MongoDB Atlas and VM are consumption-based products, right? So your customers have to start getting customers of their own and generating their own revenue. And then their revenue turns into revenue for to us, right, to the platform. And so it requires a certain level of patience and long-term thinking, right? It, you know, neither business is a, let's see if we can, you know, make some money in the next three years and, and leave or flip it or sell it. They're like, no, these are big businesses, big platforms, huge spaces, huge amounts of interesting problems to solve. How can you make really seminal, amazing businesses over the next 10, 20 years? So, so with Mongo, how much capital you were alluding about raising capital earlier before? So, prior to the IPO, how much capital had the company raised, and what was the experience of going from one cycle to the next? You're uh, you're pushing the limits of my memory here. I feel like it was in the ballpark of about three hundred million. Uh, that's correct. Over the course of about a decade, um, it's a, that's pretty close to right. You know, but the first rounds were very small. You know, we did like, I think it was like a million dollar seed round. Then we did, you know, like a couple million dollar A. You know, none of the early rounds were big. You know, this is, again, in an air, the rounds have gotten much bigger. Teams have gotten much bigger. We were doing a lot with very little uh, very early on. You know, I remember when we launched Mongo 1.0 in the summer of 2009. And I think we did our A then. That was a couple million bucks. We were eight people. Um, and trying to act much bigger. We got a call from a, a pretty big company that wanted to use Mongo, and they were asking if we could send over a salesperson, a solutions architect, or a consultant, something like that. And we were looking around at each other like, we don't have any of those things. Uh, so I guess we're going. <laughs> you know, and it was much, very much that kind of vibe. Now, now you guys ended up going public. Um you know, really incredible experience, I'm sure. How, how, how was that? How was that experience of going public? And then also, what was it like being the founder of um, 
you know, before private company and now dealing with all the regulatory, you know, hurdles that you have, you know, when you're a public, uh, a public listed company? Going public was, you know, kind of surreal. Mongo was, is the kind of company that if you're a developer, right, if you're really in the tech ecosystem, people knew about MongoDB before the IPO. But, you know, no one outside of the tech world knew about MongoDB. And then it went from being like, oh, wow, there's this company and people kind of know what it is and what's going on. And that was, that was weird. The actual IPO experience was kind of surreal. The, uh, the really interesting part and sort of the more emotional part is sort of actually continues to happen, right? I continue to talk to people who were at MongoDB then or who have been at MongoDB since or at any point in time. And you invariably hear stories like, cool, MongoDB let me pay off all my student loans or let me buy my first house or let me put my kids through college. Uh, and those are pretty cool, right? And that's, uh, and that continues to happen, right? The nice thing about that is it's not like a, a one and done at the IPO, right? I still meet people who, still have done incredibly well because of MongoDB. Uh, and that's sort of a, a very special feeling. I mean, MongoDB today with a market cap of 14 billion. So, I mean, having that, uh, that level of impact, you know, that level of value that you're creating too, I mean, it's absolutely incredible. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com, and we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, for you, Elliot, you know, eventually came a time, and that was in 2020, where you realize it's time to, to take a look at what, what is next and, and perhaps, you know, turn page on the chapter. What was what was that experience like for you? I mean, at what point do you realize that is the time to turn the page and why? Um, it had been, you know, yeah. So it had been about 13 years. And, you know, when I, as I said before, when we started MongoDB, we set out to use, to build a database that we wanted. And at that point, MongoDB was the database that I wanted, right? It was a, a big company. It was successful. The product was great. Uh, a current company, VM, uses MongoDB or a happy MongoDB Atlas customer. So uh, it kind of felt like I had done a lot of the things that I wanted to do and wanted to look for you know really big 
really new, interesting problems to solve. And so left in March of 2020 and took a little time off and then started looking at what are some really big unsolved problems that can really move the needle on moving things forward for people. I mean, six months off that you took. I mean, was it was it was it weird? Six months doing nothing, like after being for so long in the hyper growth environment. It was weird on multiple levels. It completely coincidentally, uh, I announced that I was leaving. You know, two days after COVID lockdown happened in New York, so the timing was bizarre. Uh, but it was definitely weird. It was definitely very weird going from being very busy to being not that busy. I did have three kids, so I still do have three kids. Um, so wasn't that bored. And um, yeah, and then after a few months, definitely was like itching to get back into something and you know try to find some new uh, interesting projects. So so let's talk about finding new interesting projects. What was that process that you went through? You know, of maybe like thinking about ideas, thinking about problems, until all of a sudden, you know, you came across the idea of VM and. And, and, and really bringing it to life. Yeah, so I started, you know, with all, like all good processes, starting with things that really mattered to me that I really cared about. And I started looking at things like, first one was, uh, and I mentioned before that I, you know, into boats and marine and water. And I started looking at things like ocean cleaning, right? And ocean cleaning is this big amorphous problem. And there's all sorts of ideas at the heart of all of them is a is a labor challenge, right? There's no way you're going to get millions of people actively working on cleaning oceans because there aren't people living in the middle of the oceans, right? It's a really hard problem. Uh, then you look at other things in climate change. Like you want to plant a trillion trees. Cool. Uh, there's a lot of people who need jobs in places where you don't need to plant trees or can't plant trees. And how do you solve that problem? You look into things like food quality or shortening supply chains. Uh, you end up with a lot of different problems that all end up being labor challenges. Getting people in the right places to do the right kind of work. So the obvious solution to a technologist is then sort of robotics and automation. So I was like, cool, why aren't there more robots doing useful things? Or like, you know, I live in New York City. Why aren't there robots fixing potholes? That'd be a nice thing to happen in the middle of the night. So I did what most normal people do is I bought a really high-end robot arm, put it in my living room, and tried to make it play chess against me. And it was uh, kind of a infuriating experience. Right? I consider myself a pretty reasonable programmer, and trying to program this robot arm was incredibly frustrating and incredibly exhausting. And so I made it work. I was not very happy about the process and started looking at sort of the robotic space more broadly and decided it was time for a new robotics platform to make it much easier for people to go ahead and build uh, build robots. So how do you guys make money with VM? So VM is a, a software platform for robotics, right? It's everything from the hardware up. So it makes it really easy for developers to interact with everything from motors to cameras to arms, right? Because if you ask your average software engineer, to go ahead and build a robot or work on a robot, they're not really going to know what to do. So we solve those sorts of problems on robot, and then we have cloud services to handle things like code deployment, data management, all the things that you need to do alongside your actual robot. So everything that runs on robot is open source, and all of the cloud services are commercial and consumption with consumption-based pricing. So let's imagine you're using VM for... 
data management and you want to store data from your robot and push that into the cloud so you can build more machine learning models or just keep track of things. Start with something really simple. You want to build a really fancy cat food feeder. So every time your cat eats, you want to take a picture of how much how much she was eating, take a picture of the amount of food at the beginning, the amount of food at the end. You want to store that in the cloud for the next three months so you can go back and look and see what's going on. So we manage getting the data from the cloud, sorry, from the robot to the cloud, and we charge you for managing the data in the cloud. Uh, so it's a completely consumption-based pricing, entirely based on, on usage. Um, and then you can go into more complicated things. Let's say you're building a construction robot that's building something. Then you might want to store a lot of very high-res pictures for a very long time in order to know that, hey, if something happened to make sure the robot didn't do something wrong three years later. Uh, so it's all about consumption. We, we make money when our customers make money, uh, not, any, not any way else. And in this case, I mean, it has taken it has taken no no time as well uh, because you guys got got going in 2020, and you know you guys have raised about 42 million bucks from amazing people like Tiger, uh, Battery, Union Square Ventures, amongst others. So, why raising so much money in such a, a short period of time, especially you know after your Mongo experience, you were you know, pretty well financially. So what was that thought process of bringing these people and, and also all this money, you know, so quickly? Yep. So, uh, yeah, and including in that list of people with money and is, you know, me and myself as well. The interesting part about the robotics platform space is that the, the, the surface area of an MVP is pretty large. Right. This isn't a kind of project where six people in a garage can go build a prototype in six months. At least I don't know how to do that. Right. In order to actually be useful, to act, in order to actually make it easy for a startup to go build a successful robotics business using our platform, there's just a lot of things to build. And I wasn't interested in spending the next 10 years very slowly building out the platform. I was like, no, let's see if we can actually build a platform over the next few years that is super interesting that can move the needle on what it takes to launch a robotics business. And that's what we set out to do. Uh, and I think we've done that. But it's all about, like, what's, we know what we want to build. We know what people need. We've talked to a thousand users. We know exactly the problems we're trying to solve. And let's go build, let's go build the thing they need. So how do you talk to users to really be able to understand the path forward? What does that look like to be effective? So I think it's two things, right? It's one, it's making sure you're talking to a wide range of customers uh, and users and people in the space. And more importantly is when you talk to them, making sure you're not letting your own biases and assumptions overtake you, right? It's very easy to ask leading questions that let you, you know, assume you've made the right choices because you just are asking the wrong question, right? It's really important to actually understand what they're trying to do, why they're trying to do it, the struggles they're having, what they want to do, and move in that direction. It's I've seen so many uh, CEOs or heads of product or product managers go into a customer call or a customer conversation with an assumption about what they want to build or what you know why they should build something, and then on the customer side, they have assumptions about the exact product they need and what they want or looking for in a, in a product. And you sort of see them talking past each other and a customer is like, I want this feature X. And a product manager is like, that feature X sounds cool. I'm going to go build it. 
And in reality, neither really understands what the other one is saying. And they certainly don't understand how to take a lot of feedback from a lot of customers and turn that into something interesting, right? It's really all about really getting to the heart of, okay, great. I understand what a customer is doing. I understand why they're trying to do it. I can imagine myself trying to build that same product. And I can imagine what I would want to build in those cases and the tools I would want to use and then go build those tools. Now, in this case for you, very interesting transition because you've been very much on the technical side of things uh, as the CTO of the previous ventures. So how has it been now to really shift and, uh, and really take the reins as the CEO? What is that the transition? How does that look like? You know, in some ways, it's a big transition. In other ways, it's really not. Right. I think that, you know, at MongoDB, you know, I was uh, after talking to someone I worked with at MongoDB in this capacity, you know, I was always talking to users and customers. I was always trying to figure out how to message and market to developers and how to convince customers to use MongoDB. Um, so I was always thinking a lot about marketing, about sales, about go-to-market things. And so and those are things that you know people are often surprised, but I actually love working on those things. I love working on messaging and go-to-market strategy. On one hand, the you know being CEO is sort of a, a different job. On the other hand, when I left MongoDB, I think my team was around my direct reports or well, direct reports, and my direct team is 600, 800 people, somewhere in that ballpark. And so uh, being the CEO of an 80-person company is not particularly challenging in uh, management and those things. And that is where a lot of the experience of being a third-time founder of being at somewhere like MongoDB just is like, okay, great. Like, I've seen what to do. I know what worked. I know what didn't work. And so we can just go and copy what worked. Even a lot of the process stuff, it's like, okay, great. I know the engineering and product process that I used at MongoDB that we liked. I developed it over the course of many years. And I'm just going to do the same thing here, right? I'm not going to go and reinvent the wheel and start from scratch. I know how I like to work. We've hired a lot of people that I've worked with before. And let's just keep going. So imagine you were to go to sleep tonight, Elliot. And you wake up in a world where the vision of VM is fully realized. What does that world look like? Lots of mundane problems uh, solved and lots of really interesting novel problems solved. And humans... Uh, doing more interesting things. So let's take some simple examples, right? Potholes. No one likes potholes. Annoying. But also having construction crews working in the middle of the day fixing potholes is also not great, right? That causes other problems. At night, it's hard. No one wants to work at two in the morning. So how do you solve this with robotics? Well, one of the big things that we see is that a lot of companies think they have to go from no robots or no automation to fully autonomous and sort of like really amazing 100% autonomous systems. So we don't believe in that. You have people in other parts of the world who would love to work at 2 a.m. New York time. And why can't they be driving around robots around New York City fixing potholes in the middle of the night? Same with cleaning oceans, same with planting trees. Right, we see a lot of things about as, hey, like great, there are people working. We can make robots that are semi-autonomous and have people anywhere going and helping them to use problems. Um, same with lots of things like you know construction. You know, again, making a fully autonomous construction robot really hard. Making a fifty percent or eighty percent autonomous construction robot much easier. 
So there's lots of robots and lots of things we want to see. I think the, the biggest thing for me in the short term, that if we really solve the developer problem, is that you'll see way more robotic startups, right? There are, I know of no company trying to solve the pothole problem. I think there should be 10 startups who are going to work on that problem. And the reason is that in order today, you need a lot of very specialized knowledge. And you, like most software engineers are scared of robotics. They think hardware is too hard. Uh, and they're intimidated about how to get started and how to go from a sort of like a little toy to a real project. How do I know? Because that was me, right? I had always been interested in robotics. I had always wanted to go and tinker with hardware and build little autonomous systems. And I would always spend like two hours and I would always feel like, okay, but this is like a toy. Yeah, of course, I can go follow this tutorial online and build this thing that does something. But to actually turn that into a product or to make that more robust, it didn't feel like the tools were there. And so I kept playing at this, you know, this space for you know, 20 years and I never really made headway. And when I talked to other software engineers, a lot of them are also in that same place. They're like, yeah, you know, it'd be cool to build something you know, robotic, but like, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to start. And then you talk to robotic startups and they can't hire regular software engineers because the regular software engineers are intimidated or don't feel like they have the right knowledge. And so sort of one of the big things I want to see is, you know, your run-of-the-mill average software engineer being excited about robotics and feeling like they can actually make a difference. And, you know, I don't know what all the problems are they're going to solve and I don't want to know. It's actually one of my favorite things about MongoDB and VM is that we're enabling programmers and developers and engineers to go and come up with their own ideas and go execute. And the coolest part is seeing everyone else's vision for what's going to happen come to life using your tools, right? That's the really cool part, right? Because again, I can give you 30 robots that I wish existed tomorrow, but I guarantee when we let a million software engineers start building robots easily, we will see way better, way cooler, way more ideas than I can come up with. I love it. Now, if I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time, back in time at that moment where you're coming out of Brown, you know, you're thinking about entering the world. Now you're seeing, you know, like hyper growth companies, all of that stuff. And imagine you had the opportunity of having a chat with your younger self and being able to tell that younger Elliot one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? I think with all businesses, the most important thing is really understanding your users, right? Understanding what they really want and what motivates them, right? It's very easy to understand superficially the thing that's bothering them today, but really try to understand what their goals are, not just for their technology, but for their business changes everything, right? When you understand where someone's going, not in the next three months, but the next three years, the next six years, you can both help them sort of articulate that. And then you can make sure that you understand how you can partner with them to make them as successful as possible. Right? Because the best businesses are partnerships with their clients, right? If, the, if you're just a tool, you're probably relatively easy to swap out. If you're a partner because you understand where they're going and you're going to help them get where they're going, and you know, there's a lot of people who say that's what they do, but to actually do it, that is unique and that makes very special companies. Absolutely. Now, for the people that are listening, Elliot, that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, I'm easy to find. You know, find me on Twitter at Elliot Horowitz or LinkedIn, Elliot Horowitz. Technically, I'm on Instagram, but don't really do anything there. 
I'm easy to find. I would love to hear about anything from robotics ideas to other interesting stuff. Amazing. Well, Elliot, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thanks a lot. It's been a really great chatting and uh, hope to talk to people soon. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.